news and strong opinions. The Mike Broomhead Show, KTAR News, 92.3 FM, and the KTAR News app. No, it's not Mike Broomhead. This is Matt Salmon, in for the big guy, and uh, happy January. Uh, Governor Katie Hobbs just uh, put out her budget for the state of Arizona. Uh, and not only is it a lot of money, uh, but uh, she also has some very, very different priorities from the past governor, Governor Ducey. Uh, during the end of the last legislative session last year, Governor Ducey uh, signed a bill into law uh, giving ESAs or empowerment scholarship accounts uh, to virtually uh, any child in Arizona and giving that decision uh, to the parents. And what that means is that about $7,000, which is the average cost of what it uh, uh, costs to educate a child in the state, is able to take their tax dollars with them to put in the school of their choice. And yes, that can include private and parochial schools. And so it's a big debate. Now, in her budget, she wants to wipe it out or severely curtail it. Uh, and uh, on the radio with me this morning is one of the original sponsors of the Empowerment Scholarship accounts. He's a former state senator, and right now uh, he is heading up the largest school choice organization in the country called the American Federation for Children. A great guy and a great friend and a, a great public leader. Uh, please welcome with me uh, Steve Smith. Hi, Steve. Well, good morning, Matt. Appreciate it. And, uh, and and let me just, you know, thank you. I mean, you were one of the, the very early pioneers of this movement from your days in the legislature and in Congress. So thank you for, for literally getting the ball rolling on this effort. And uh, thank you for all you've done and what you continue to do. Steve, can you please walk the listeners through um, what was the original legislation that you sponsored? Uh, what kids did it apply to? Why uh, did policymakers such as yourself believe that it was important to do that? And what is the law now? And and uh, and then I'll have a couple of other follow up questions. And 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 why did you do it? Yeah, absolutely. You know, it was back in 2011, my first year in the Senate, and and the and the talk was families need more options. It, it's been you know Ronald Reagan has been talking about this since the 1980s. I mean, it's it's just one of those fundamental truths that nobody knows their kid better, and nobody has that kid's interest more at heart. Than, the, than their mom and dad. And so what we did back in 2011, we started this ESA program, the Empowerment Scholarship Account Program, but it started with special needs families, it went to military families, it went to kids in failing schools, it went to kids on tribal lands, right? And it kept growing until last year, Governor Ducey and the legislature, Representative uh, Bentoma and others said, we need to make this available for everyone. And it just morphed into what we now call the universal ESA, the universal where every single mom and dad or guardian listening to our voices right now in the state of Arizona, if they have a kid in the K-12 system, all it means is you, mom and dad, can reach into your tax bucket that you spend your tax money on to fund education, and you can control those dollars now. If you would like your kid to stay put in the public school, do just that. But if you want to use those dollars and say, no, I want my child to go to, to this private school or to learn at home or to hire tutors to come to my house and teach them one-on-one, to do online learning, whatever it is that you want to do, you have now the freedom to do it. So, uh, Steve, what about the critics that say that this is going to decimate the public schools? And what about the critics who say that there's really no oversight for the program? 
Well, as it's always been, there's no better oversight than the moms and dads. Moms and dads, again, know what is best for their kid. They know what their children are learning. They know what they want them to learn. They know the morals or the values that they want to learn in their school or the curriculum they might want to have or, or whatnot. And by the way, when it comes to accountability, it's their money. You know, it's funny. Everybody says, well, government money and government money. Government doesn't have any money. <laughs> government only has How our true. money. How true. That's right. So, so, so let the families use their money and make their decisions. So, so Steve, what about what what about some mass exodus from the uh, uh, from the public schools? Do we anticipate that's going to happen? Well, what's interesting there is there's just shy of fifty thousand kids in this program. There's one point one million K twelve students in Arizona. So, less than so, if we do the <laughs> less than yeah, I mean, yeah, that's that's pretty small. Less than one percent. Right. So that's right. So fifty thousand of over one point one million, I would hardly call the decimation of the public school system. Matter of fact, during COVID, in the one year during COVID, when you know during twenty twenty and all that, the the Arizona public schools lost about fifty thousand kids. Okay. Fifty thousand kids just didn't show up, you know, to school. Well, I didn't see here many schools closing down or any principals being fired, right? And so, uh, so, so I, again, I think it's a, I think it's a big red herring. At the end of the day, however many families use it, it's their right to use it. So, Steve, um, going forward, do you see that uh, there'll be a lot more private schools? Uh, because is there the capability right now t- to meet all of the demand with the current private schools, or, 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 or are we going to need to see some new private schools come into being? You know, I, I think where there's demand, supply will always exist. And so the more and more families that are saying, whoa, 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 wait, this is real? You mean I can really do this? <laughs> and there's no, right, no matter what income I'm from or what, what you know, failing school neighborhood I'm in or, or whatever, you know, whatever my background is, I can access this? And when they find out, yeah, you really can, I think the demand will continue to rise. And when the demand rises, whether it's private schools expanding, whether it's homeschool co-ops expanding, or micro schools, or pods, or, or right, I mean, uh, you know, online learning, all forms of education will rise to the top. And the great thing is, and studies have shown this, where there's more school choice, the public schools actually get better. You know, because when more competition is is introduced into the marketplace, well, the public schools are saying, "Well, wait a minute, we got to keep up." And every kid is for the better. And Steve, we're out of time, but you know, competition is the one thing that always, always makes a better product for a lower price. Uh, we've seen it in the marketplace. Uh, competition uh, makes uh, better technologies. Uh, co- competition uh, puts the customer in the strongest spot, and the customer being the parent, I completely agree with what you're saying. Who has a better knowledge of the needs of that child than the parent? Certainly not some nameless, faceless bureaucrat. That's right. Amen to that. And the last thing I'll say about that is, and the parents' voices were on display earlier this week and, and late last week when Governor Hobbs made her budget recommendations. You saw parents descend to the Capitol, hold a rally, hold a press conference. You had people, parents like Becky Green and Stacey Brown and others, hold press conferences with the hundreds there saying, don't take away R-E-S-A. And I want to acknowledge those parents, thank those parents, have those parents keep fighting and fighting and fighting because they will fight for their kids. And one last thing before you go. I 
I, I know we're out of time, but I think I remember you saying that you were meeting with uh, one of the African-American pastors in the state, and he made the comment that this is really the civil rights issue of our day. You know, Matt, you're 100% right. There's so many minority voices and, and minority leaders, not just in Arizona, but we had we had a gentleman who's 90, 93 years old out of Alabama who marched with MLK in the 1960s. And when this debate was going around this legislation, he sent a personal video from Alabama to the state legislature wow. and their governor saying, this is the civil rights issue of the day. Pass this bill. Well, thanks a lot, Steve, and keep up the good work. This is Matt Salmon in for Mike Broomhead, and you're listening to KTAR. Strong values and strong opinions. The Mike Broomhead Show, KTAR News, 92.3 FM, and the KTAR News app. Good morning, everybody. This is Matt Salmon in for Mike Broomhead, and you're listening to KTAR. In 2018, Alec Baldwin joined a celebrity coalition, No Rifle Association, kind of a play on words with the NRA. Instead, it's the No RA, whose goal was to shine a light on the National Rifle Association's alleged hold on the United States government. We're going to shine a bright light on what you and your organization do to America, the No RA initiative wrote in a 2018 letter to NRA Executive Vice President Wayne LaPierre. We're going to make sure that the whole world sees your bloody hands. We're coming for your money. We're coming for your puppets. And we're going to win. That was part of the statement put out by Alec Baldwin and company back in 2018. Well... Fast forward to 2023. Alec Baldwin to be charged with involuntary manslaughter in fatal rust shooting. So prosecutors plan to charge Alec Baldwin with involuntary manslaughter in the fatal shooting of a cinematographer on the set of the movie Rust in New Mexico in 2021, the district attorney in Santa Fe said on Thursday. The film's assistant director, David Halls, has agreed to plead guilty to the charge of negligent use of a deadly weapon, according to the statement. The shooting occurred at the set of the low-budget western outside of Santa Fe, New Mexico, in October 2021. During preparations for the scene, Mr. Baldwin, what an idiot, discharged a live round from a revolver. That wasn't in the story. I ad-libbed a little bit. I hope you'll forgive me. Uh, He discharged a live round from a revolver, killing 42-year-old Helena Hutchins, the film's director, Joel Souza, was wounded. And uh, this is what uh, Baldwin's lawyer has said in a statement, that Mr. Baldwin had no reason to think there was a live bullet in the gun or anywhere on the film set. I've been a lifelong member of the National Rifle Association for, gosh, over 20 years. And I'm an avid uh, sportsman. Uh, in fact, uh, a couple days ago, I went with my good buddy, Joe Farnsworth. Hope you're listening, Joe, uh, to uh, the Rio Salado range, which is a great one. Hope you uh, get a chance to use it. It's one of the treasures uh, of the East Valley uh, up uh, along the Bush Highway. And uh, was able to sight in my brand new uh, 
uh, 300 Win Mag. Uh, it's a uh, Browning uh, and uh, with a uh, Vortex scope. And I'm uh, put in for the elk hunt uh, this year with my uh, grandson, who's 14 years old, and my son-in-law. We put in for areas 3A and 3B and 3C. Uh, put in for archery uh, as well as rifle. But if uh, Mr. Baldwin had done any kind of research at all, he would understand that uh, the NRA does safety classes. And the very first thing they drill into your head, and go, go shooting at uh, Rio Salado or any other gun range, and they're going to be very, very sticklers about making sure that you adhere to gun safety. And one of the rules... One of the cardinal rules of anybody, any anybody that's ever taken any kind of a gun safety class, is you don't point any weapons at people. And a lot of people are kind of scratching their heads and wondering, why in the world would he have pointed it and discharged it? They don't go off by themselves, by the way, folks. You actually have to pull the trigger. They don't just go off uh, on a whim. Uh, and uh, he pointed it at one of the one of the uh, the, the producers or directors, and fatally uh, wounded her. I mean, what a moron! And uh, you know, kind of reminds me of a little boy uh, that recently said to his teacher, uh, when the teacher said, "You failed your test," he said, "No, I didn't. My pencil failed it." Because that's the same kind of rationale that people have. The gun killed somebody. No, the gun didn't kill anybody. An idiot, a deranged person, somebody who's a psychopath or somebody that uh, uh, had ulterior motives, somebody that wanted to rob a store or rob an individual, they killed somebody. And so the answer isn't to... Uh, deal with inanimate objects who won't do anything on their own. I guarantee you, any of the guns that I own will not crawl off the table and then go shoot somebody. It takes an idiot behind them to actually make these kinds of mistakes. An idiot or or somebody that has evil intent. And uh, frankly, I think it's the right thing uh, for the prosecutor in Santa Fe to do. I believe that uh, uh, I believe with all my heart, like my Mike Broomhead says, time after time after time in the Second Amendment to the Constitution that the right to bear arms shall not be abridged in any way, shape, or form. And uh, I do believe that the... uh Amendment is not uh, anything to do with duck hunting or elk hunting or deer hunting. Has everything to do with the fact that our founding fathers believed that the citizens should have a right and a responsibility to protect themselves. They should be able to protect themselves from uh, a government uh, that uh, tries to infringe on their inalienable rights, and it and it uh, also. Uh, should be able to protect themselves from intruders that come in and threaten their families. And you know what? In the states uh, that, like Arizona, uh, where we religiously adhere uh, to the Second Amendment to the Constitution, uh, you can see uh, that in in our state um, that criminals do take a second and a third uh, thought before they attack somebody not knowing who's packing. But uh, I am thrilled that the Santa Fe prosecutors are doing their job because safety uh, requires that uh, people that handle guns, even guns on movie sets, act responsibly. There you go, Alec Baldwin. This is Matt Salmon in for Mike Broomhead. I hope you'll stick with me with our next segment.
Strong values and strong opinions. The Mike Broomhead Show, KTAR News, 92.3 FM, and the KTAR News app. Welcome to the Mike Broomhead Show. This is Matt Salmon in for Mike Broomhead on KTAR. Yesterday, we were graced with the presence of our illustrious Vice President, Kamala Harris. She visited Arizona, and her number one role, her number one reason for being in the Vice President role that uh, President Biden has given her, added responsibility to be the border czar. All things border is what she's all about. And so she was in our state yesterday, a border state, where we've been having all kinds of breaches, where fentanyl is coming untethered across the Mexican border. In fact, 92% of all the illicit fentanyl in this country is being manufactured predominantly in China and coming across the Mexican border, smuggled across by the cartels. And it is the number one killer of young adults, I believe people under age 35. Serious, serious issue. We've got uh, uh, women that are being smuggled across the border, raped many times by the coyotes uh, working for the cartels. They're smuggling them across the border. Children and women and all kinds of people being sold into involuntary servitude or slave uh, trading as we're seeing it, modern-day slave trading today across the border. All kinds of serious issues that are happening, so much so that uh, our, our two Democrat senators from Arizona, both Mark Kelly and Kirsten Sinema, sent a letter to President Biden urging him to not allow Title 42 to just go away. Title 42, as you remember, is the law that basically allows them to put people back across the border immediately because of our health care issues. It was uh, sparked under Trump because of COVID, but it has been a tool for uh, some kind of regulation on the border. All these things are happening and borders are vice president. Kamala Harris visits our border state and she visited the border, right? Wrong. Now she was here to talk about renewable energy She didn't have time to visit the border. That's not an important enough issue uh, for her. So uh, there's a columnist uh, for USA Today, Ingrid Jacks, uh, that uh, wrote a very opinionated piece, uh, but I happen to agree with it. Let me just read a few excerpts from it. When presidential contender Joe Biden appointed U.S. Senator Kamala Harris as his running mate in 2020, expectations for her were high. So her addition to the team energized the Democratic base. She was the first black woman and the first person person of South Asian descent on a major party presidential ticket. And at 58, she brought relative youth to the White House. Given Biden's age 80 and Harris also has received extra scrutiny, 
because there's a real possibility she might step into the Oval Office. In fact, I think that's been Joe Biden's uh, top insurance policy. Uh, the idea that if uh, Republican lawmakers impeached him and were successful in removing him uh, with the Senate vote, two-thirds, um, that uh, Kamala Harris would then be president of the United States. That's chilling. And that's something that I think has uh, been his number one insurance policy in staying in as president. Uh, plus, uh, she's been considered an obvious choice to run if Biden does not in uh, 2024. And that being said, this is the opinion uh, writer uh, Ingrid Jacks saying this. Uh, that being said, identity politics can only take you so far. And Harris hasn't brought much else to the table. The consensus seems to be she's been she's done an extraordinarily unimpressive job as vice president. One recent headline from Reason magazine said Kamala Harris is a flop. And in November, she didn't min- the slate didn't mince words saying he should pick a new VP. She was in Arizona, didn't visit the border. Shame on you, Vice President and Border Czar Kamala Harris. I'm Matt Salmon in for Mike Broomhead. I hope you'll stick with us. Strong values and strong opinions. The Mike Broomhead Show, KTAR News, 92.3 FM and the KTAR News app. Hey everybody, it's Matt Salmon. I'm in for Mike Broomhead and you're listening to KTAR. There's been a lot of uh, hoopla and speculation about uh, the annual raising of the debt ceiling. It is a requirement of the U.S. Congress to actually go in and have a vote uh, to raise the debt ceiling because of our ever-increasing national debt. Right now, it's at $31 trillion. When I first went into Congress in 1995, it was $5 trillion. And I was apoplectic about that. In fact, it was one of the chief reasons that I ran. So during that time, during the 90s, um, let me tell you how things operated. Uh, Bill Clinton was the president of the United States. Newt Gingrich was the speaker of the House. And we were kind of rolling through the contract with America. But at that time, um, every year... Come rain or shine, we passed 12 appropriation bills. That's the way it's set up. And those appropriation bills range from commerce state justice to uh, dealing with uh, our uh, schools, uh, our educational system, our uh, agriculture, uh, and our transportation. I could go on and on. But there are 12 appropriation bills. And there was supposed to be intense scrutiny, and rightly so, because priorities change from time to time and programs that have been around forever, even though Ronald Reagan said the closest thing we're going to see to eternal life is a government program uh, in in this life. Um, The fact is that there needs to be scrutiny because our priorities change and technologies change and things change. And there should be constant scrutiny of the of the all aspects of the federal budget. And that was done in two ways. So in the Appropriations Committee, those folks appropriate. But before they can appropriate, the authorizing committees, and they look at all the policies and, and the things that the agencies handle, they go through and they authorize uh, the budget for that, uh, uh, that specific part of the budget. And then the appropriators appropriate. And then those bills pass. They pass both the House and the Senate. They go to the president. And it all gets culminated into one big, bad federal budget. And the president uh, either signs it or vetoes it. That's the way it's supposed to work. And back in the 90s, that's the way it worked every year. 
folks, that hasn't been done. That that process is called regular order. And that hasn't happened for the last, literally for the last 30 years. In fact, when I was in Congress uh, in 1997, or maybe it was 98, 98, we first balanced the budget for the first time in 40 years. And we did it again and again. We did it three times in a row. In fact, when I left Congress in 2001, not only did we not have a deficit, we had a budget surplus of about $140 billion. Think about that, folks. We weren't overspending. Since that time, uh, I don't care whether it's been a Republican president or a Democrat president. And yes, those of you out there that think that Donald Trump did everything 100% perfect, uh, he increased the deficit every year he was in office and also the federal debt to an amazing degree. In fact, uh, I believe he actually increased the federal debt more in his four years than Obama did in his eight years as president. So what are we going to do to get things on, on track? Every year we go in and just have a perfunctory raising of the debt ceiling. I'm going to segue that right now because that regular order process hasn't been done for years. What it's been replaced with is you've got four or five people uh, in leadership going into a room with uh, appropriate committee chairs, just four or five people on each uh, side of the uh, 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 side of the fence, the Senate side and the House side, and then they walk into a room and they come out with this big, ugly federal budget that's reams and reams of paper, and they lay it on members' desk and jam it down their throats. You know, literally two hours before they're supposed to vote, nobody can read through all that voluminous material. So why do we do things that way? It's crazy. And instead of passing a federal budget where you get scrutiny on every aspect of the budget through those 12 appropriation bills, it's now uh, legislated by a continuing resolution, which is constantly a fiscal cliff. And then also uh, a, a, a big, ugly omnibus bill where they tuck everything in there. They call it the Christmas tree. That's the way it's done. Now, I want to go through what's happened recently because a lot, I think a lot of you are very, very interested in this. The fact that uh, the speaker had to go through 15 unprecedented votes uh, to finally get elected as a speaker. Folks, this was one of the issues that was front and center. And it should be. Why should you care about it as an average American? Why should you care about the debt? Never mind the fact that it's going to strangle future future generations that are paying for our irresponsible spending of today. In fact, I've, I taped a sign to my mirror. I uh, it's a it's an acronym. I uh, S. Yes, uh, it's the spending stupid. The fact is, we've got to get our federal spending under control. And the only way, the only leverage that uh, typical members of Congress have to get it done is during that debt limit debate, debt ceiling increase debate. And so don't be too quick to say that they're just being irresponsible. The fact is, out of control spending has a direct and corollary effect on inflation. That we're all facing every day. And that's a hidden tax increase. The fact is we're dealing with unprecedented inflation. And any of you can go back to your Economics 101 class and be told again that runaway spending replaced by a Federal Reserve that just prints more money to deal with paying for that, uh, that added debt leads to runaway inflation, hyperinflation. Folks, we're there. We need to demand more of our people on both sides of the aisle. We need to scrutinize.
scrutinize those budgets every year with public scrutiny, with complete transparency. And we need to make sure that not just a few people are making those decisions, but the House of Representatives is back to being a House of Representatives that actually represents all the people. That's the system of government we have. And we should be demanding that our leaders get back to the basics, blocking and tackling, and making sure that our spending is completely reviewed to make sure that programs are still needed. This is uh, Matt Salmon, Chapter and Verse. Hope you'll stick with us for the next segment. Uh, I'll be uh, introducing Kirsten Cinema at the top of the hour. This is Matt Salmon, KTAR.